Merry Christmas, everyone. Um, my name is Daniel. I'm an elder here at the church, and I just wanted to say thank you um, for being here. And just a kind of quick reminder as we end up the year that um, some of the awesome things that God has done here at the church um, over the year um, as far as just... Um, we had Vacation Bible School this year. We've been able to get uh, life groups, people involved in life groups and different Bible studies and things like that and have seen God doing amazing things here at the church. Um, and we encourage all of you to go ahead. If you haven't already, check out that um, the new Life Community app that we have um, that can get you connected either to a Bible study, life groups, um, all the different things that we have on there to because um, it is our heart and our desire to um, help people to um, know God and then grow closer to him and then go and share with him our know, go, and grow. And so we definitely um, thank you all that are faithful and coming um, and doing that with us and serving and loving and honoring God and his son who were celebrating his birth today. So I thank you all for that. Um, and I'm going to be reading um, Jeremiah chapter 23 verses 5 and 6 today. And I'll give you a sec if you need to look that up. I'm guessing a lot of people aren't in Jeremiah a lot, <laughs> but I'll go ahead and start reading. Chapter 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a, raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteous in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God as we gather on Christmas and open the word. There's over 300 prophecies that a tiny baby was born and threw off the entire world trajectory. And Satan's plan continues to try and attack women and kids because of the bloodline, because of the promise and the power of God and, and every little detail. Can't tell you how many times I've been to the store and there's chicken broth and then there's like beef broth. And I'm like, I didn't even know we had beef so I'm sitting there studying, and then I come home, even though I went for chicken broth, the wrong thing. It's like, oh, I tried so hard, and yet God's plan, and he has such a great sense of humor we're going to see. But how are we doing today? What are you afraid of? When you think of fear, immediately you probably think of maybe uh, spiders, um, snakes. I have this, like, kind of want a snake, but I'm kind of afraid of snakes. But maybe you're afraid of snakes. Maybe you're afraid of heights. And uh, when I think about fear, you, you often go to those kind of extreme, kind of rare things, like a spider's going to drop on your face, you're going to be afraid of that. But, but more often, what we're afraid of, it, it reveals what we're either insecure about or what we care about, right? So when I was a kid growing up, and you get your license and your first car, and you're like, yes, I can drive, but you don't really care about that first car in a way that you're afraid of people breaking into it. Like my first car 
couple of the doors didn't really work, you know, the locks on them and the, the sliding window in my truck never worked. And I never really bothered to fix it because it was like a 1980 Toyota. Like no one's going to break into that. And so I get in the car one day to go to church and I shut the door and the speaker flies out of the door panel into my lap. Like that's not supposed to, okay, that's weird. And then I got to shift the, the shifter because there's a manual transmission, how cars should be, right? And and so the knob's gone, and I'm like, dude, they're not, what is the going on? I look at my CD player's gone. I'm like, ah! And immediately I was like, are you kidding me? I'm, oh, someone violated me. They stole my stereo. It was like $70 stereo. You know, my, my world's crashing down. My buddy's car, similarly, he just had a screwdriver that hung out on the back bumper of it, and you just shoved the screwdriver in the hole for the, for the, the trunk to pop up, and you turned it. You know, you don't really, you're not really afraid of anyone stealing. He would literally leave it for, like, weeks when he'd go on mission trips and just a parking lot abandoned, you know? He's like, I'll get it when I come back. I don't really care. Like, we don't fear for those things, but when I was in, in college, I slept on people's couches. I didn't really care. I didn't really have a fear that someone's going to break in and steal my stuff because I just had a pair of shoes. There wasn't a whole lot, aside from my shoes and computer, to be afraid someone might take. But then when you get a house, all of a sudden you put locks on it, and then you, you put smart locks so you can make sure you know when your mother-in-law comes over or your mom comes over, and you're like, whoa, someone's in my house right now. And all of a sudden, you know these things. You're like, uh-oh. My mom and my wife's mom, they're not at our house. So who's at our house? Like something just happened. We're afraid of those things all of a sudden. This fear creeps in. As much as we think we're not, all of a sudden we start realizing when we look down, our, our knuckles are a little tighter and wider as we hold possessions. We're holding our power or we're wanting more power and, and when you have power and you have possessions, the, the last thing that comes is you want to protect it, don't you? You want to protect it. You want to buy insurance. I just spent $200,000 on a car, $100,000 on a car. You want that 200,000 mile warranty. You want that insurance. You want to protect the investment. And it's your, your power, right? And, and so you have these three things we see. And interestingly enough, when David was just a shepherd before he got a new title, King David, when David was a shepherd... He was a man after God's own heart. He was pursuing God. He was training to follow God. And then Samuel comes to pick the next king, and David's out. He's not looking for his angle to improve his posture or position in society. He's serving. He's just a shepherd, cleaning up sheep poop. That's all. Like His whole job was to make sure the sheep don't die and to kind of protect them and care for them. There was no real power. There was no care for possessions. And, and he didn't really... It was all just protecting God's creation for God's purpose. And so he ends up becoming a king, and then we know that's pride comes before the fall, even for someone who's called a man after God's own heart. So this whole King David thing, why in the world is Jesus born in Bethlehem? Why is he born in the house of bread? Why is Bethlehem the house of bread? Why in the world over 300 prophecies are fulfilled, but why did God throw that one in there? Because he has a lot. He doesn't really need any more. Like <laughs> he goes over and beyond. The crazy thing is God promised in Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. So Israel is constantly struggling. They're constantly being attacked. They have 
very little to no power, they have very little to no possessions, and they have zero protection. And all of a sudden they hear, wow, there's going to be a righteous king, and he's going to come from David, because David was legit, like pre-Bathsheba David, okay? David was super legit before all the sin and consequences, and then um, we're waiting for that, who will, who will reign wisely and do what is just. And it speaks of even David's son, right, who was wise, Solomon. But in his day, it says, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Solomon had a, a fair amount of safety, but it, it eventually ended. And here it says, this is the name by which he'll be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. And we know this Savior has... His kingdom has no end. And we see in Luke 1.31, in fulfillment of this prophecy given 600 years before, angel Gabriel told Mary, you'll conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. Forever. Which when you have a king, that's why they say, Long live the king. Like, the king did some good things, and we want that to continue. But here, Jesus' reign will reign forever. His kingdom will never end. In Luke 1, 33, he's going to reign over the descendants forever. His kingdom will have no end. And where did it start? In the shadow of Herod's reign. There's two kings that were reigning. Herodian was, was Herod's most magnificent, just plush, Five star, and so we see this, this, uh, this tell here, and what happens in ancient kind of Israel, they would conquer and then build on top of that, conquer, build on top of that. So it's a perfect kind of time capsule of history if you dug down, and on top of this, this tell is the Herodian, and, and they excavate on top of it. So from the kind of bird's eye view, the next picture will show you this tower in the, the upper left-hand corner, and that tower would have been, that's kind of the foundation, and above that would have been apartments and, and living quarters for Herod and his family. Um, that's kind of the main dining, kind of main great room, if you will. And then in the next picture, you'll see this just amazing uh, stonework and mason work that they have. That If you go back one, you'll see that on the ground there. That's still a remnant of, in the Herodian. So it's still preserved with the plaster and the stonework and tile. It's, uh, Herod spared no expense, taxing all of the peasants everywhere and then getting all the money to build these massive fortresses because he has a lot of power and he wants the possessions and he wants to protect it. So this security, so he, he kept trying to impress people and protect his small little, because Israel's small, and so the trade routes he had, the next, we're going to look at Masada in a minute, but if we see that, the next image after this should be um, kind of a better, nope, all right, well, I have a really cool one, you guys should see it, too bad, so the next one is, go back to Masada, love it when internet steals pictures, so this is Masada, and you only get one glimpse, because you have to go there to see the magnificence of this. This is in the southern um, southeast part where it doesn't rain in the Dead Sea. And they built this massive, he built this massive um, palace up there. And that's where the, they asked for Herod's head. 
in, in that palace. And so it's, it's also got another recent history you can read about where a bunch of, um, they were surrounded and they, they held, held siege and a bunch of Jewish zealots ended up just saying, hey, we're not going to surrender, we're going we're gonna to kill ourselves here, and they killed everybody. And it was pretty gnarly. And, you, and you're there and you see they dug out massive cisterns of water and, and had fresh water swimming pools in the Dead Sea. So they didn't have just the dead sea, the salt water, which when I was there, they said, hey, don't open your eyes in the salt water. And I was like, yeah, surf, it's fine. And I'll, I'll listen to you, though. So I'm swimming around because it's in a hotel, indoor swimming pool. And all of a sudden, lapse of wisdom, I'm like, oh, I'm underwater. And I open my eyes, and I will never forget that. I think my eyes are still a little blurry from that experience. It was super salty. So Herod had on the top of this giant plateau, freshwater swimming pools, beautiful mosaic floors that we saw in the Herodian, hot and cold, little hot tubs and cool baths. And he had, and it was one of the, the strategic trade points to protect his kingdom. And so King Herod's most beautiful palace was in Caesarea, which is the next one. We see that is uh, an aqueduct they built so they could transport water on the, the coast there. And the next one we see is, is the amphitheater that overlooks just, I mean, I was like, why would I ever want to come home? Like, this is amazing. You're on the ocean. You have this massive amphitheater, which everyone talks about, like Hollywood Bowl and other places, but nothing compares to that. It's so beautiful. And this last picture you see um, on the kind of center left is, is this big kind of chariot track remnants of like Charlton Heston, they would do that, and that's where they would have the, the games there, and it's just beautiful. So we see Herod had this massive, not just megalomaniac, but just unsustainable and unsatiable just hunger for power, security, protection from his enemies, controlling the trade routes, controlling the people with, with games and, and the architecture to just overpower them and overtax them so he could continue to build and build and build. And we see that that, that theater set, seats over 400 people. And the, the palace has fresh water and the swimming pool at Caesarea goes out into the ocean, 100 yards of fresh water. So you can swim in your freshwater pool and not have to worry about salt in your eyes. So Herod in the time was just insane. And the temple he had was the largest enclosure of its day. It was massive. And the stones that they brought up, they measured and, and you know, Calculated they weigh 650 tons and put 30 to 40 feet in the wall. So Herod had this massive vision for wealth, but we have to give credit because his slaves and his employees were Jews. So it was the Jewish engineers and the stonemasons that made it all happen and that did the work. Herod was made strong and he thought safe by all these buildings he built, not only to intimidate, but also to protect his kingdom. And it's interesting as we think about, this is the backdrop. This is the shadow that Jesus was born. There was two kings that ruled alongside each other. One was the acknowledged monarch who led from this protected, powerful place in the fortress, magnificent buildings, and ruled with an iron fist, killed his wife, son, anyone that intimidated him, he just killed him. He heard word that maybe you didn't like his sandals or he smelled a little funny, you're dead. Like there was not even a, a second thought. He just would, would kill you. And so his legacy was literally on the possessions and buildings and trying to protect his power and his possessions. 
And after he died, they just went over to whoever conquered him and, and killed him in the next generation. So that's what his legacy was. And the other king that was born in the shadow was born in a cave in the shadow of Herod's palace, the Herodian, literally that tell, that's where Bethlehem was, was just a few miles away. And, and this king was recognized by only a handful of people and he left zero buildings. His kingdom has no end. He was literally born in a cave, much like that. It was a shepherd's cave. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Micah 5.2 says an Old Testament prophet foretold that Jesus would be born here in Bethlehem in Ephrath. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times, Micah 5.2. So God kept using his mouthpieces, his prophets, to keep Israel focused on him. One day I will send my Savior, I will send my King, who will reign forever. And it was in the shadow of Herod. Herod, interestingly, was an Indomian, and he married politically, strategically, into the Jewish royal line. So because he was married to a Jew, he got to assume the role of a Jew as king, and because Rome had conquered the land recently, they needed someone that would be under Rome rule and, and be in line with them, but that they could trust to enforce their control of the region. And so that's where he got to come in at the perfect time to take over as a Jewish king, even though he wasn't actually Jewish. So he built these gigantic fortresses we looked at and the palaces, and literally none greater than the, the Herodium, which was a few miles from Bethlehem, which is in Judea, and he had, a, it was interesting when you think about had all these people and all this control in, in the village where Jesus was born only had two to 300 people in it. Two to 300 people. It's like when you drive through Harmony, you're like, oh, we missed it. What did I miss? Oh, there's a town, there's Bethlehem. Even, you know, we were talking to the staff and someone was like, yeah, they were going to go to Bethlehem, but it's like a ghetto. And, it's, and, and Daniel was like, isn't it always been a ghetto? Yeah. When I went there, it was like, oh, we're going to Bethlehem. I was like, what's wrong? They're like, oh, we have to, it's like under Palestine control, so you got to go through security checkpoints. And I thought, you know, I've been to Skid Row and a bunch of needles and drugs and guns. I thought I was like, no, I'm ready to, I was like, oh, I'm not ready to go to Bethlehem. This is crazy. And, and it's mind-blowing how tense it still is. And, and I don't think a lot has really changed from what Bethlehem was. And so really, you know, Mary was probably like, really, we got to go to Bethlehem? Like, what in the world's wrong with you, Joseph? Why are you a part of this lineage? Why are you born? Why is David in your, like, what? Bethlehem's the house of David? This is sketchy. This is small. This is insignificant. This is like, not only is it not helpful, this is like hurtful. You know, when you think about your family and you go, man, what traits have I received from my family? What inheritances have I gotten? What, what, Lessons have I, no, there's literally nothing. Like, there's nothing good in Bethlehem. It's really small, and, and it's stinky. And we think about it, the, the little small details, instead of the massive palace of prestige and power and wealth, you have Mary and Joseph who go to Bethlehem. And because it's so small, obviously there's no room for them anywhere. There's only 200 people. And so they go to where there's only a space available, which is a shepherd's cave. And, and the stone mangers were in these, these shepherd's caves. And, and typically, they're, 
they're in stables or small caves, and, and, and oftentimes even they're under homes. In a small village like that, you'd have your house kind of on stilts, and you'd have the, the manger down under the home. You'd have the, the, you know, the nativity scene where the animals would, would be under the home. And so you walk into a cave like this, and the smell, we just got chickens. I've never had chickens or, or any kind of animal like that that, like, leave poop around. Like, it's like, dude, what's your problem? Like, I've had cats, you know, they kind of clean up, dig, they're, like, embarrassed. Like, sorry. It's like, yeah, you should be. That, that, you should be horrified. You pooped in my house. You know, and the dog, they, like, look at you. They're like, I know I shouldn't have, but I had to. Like, I don't, I'm still a dog. Like, I don't know what's going on, but, ah. But chickens are like, what are you going to do about it? I'm just pooping everywhere. And like horses, cows, that's what they do. They're just like, dude, I'm a big old animal. I got, like, this is how God made me. So you better deal with it, right? So sheep, the shepherds are like, well, we, we got to protect you. So they shove them in a cave like this. And the crazy thing is if we go to the next one, you'll see they have a little protection out front. And a lot of times different caves will have different kind of rocks to protect the little babies. But the smell would be overpowering. And you think about it. I mean, what are shepherds carrying around? They don't have giant shovels like we do at like farm supply that help like get all the poop out real quick. They got a staff and they're on to the next. So that means all the poop just stays there. So for hundreds of thousands of years, this cave is just piled of poop and, Mary, and Joseph's like, all right, Mary, like, just go with this, okay? We got a cave. I know there's like hundreds of thousands of years of poop, but don't worry, I, there's a sweet stone, like, cradle. It's gonna be awesome. She's like, there's a bunch of poop, and there's a rock for my baby's head to lay on. You're, you're 0 for 2, Joe. Like, th- let's, let's figure this out. This is not good. And he's like, I know, but don't worry. Hopefully, looks like there's some embers, so hopefully the, the smoke and the soot that's just caked on the roof of this cave for hundreds of thousands of years, hopefully the smoke kind of like a trigger, the smoke will mask the poop smell. Like, hopefully we're doing okay. That's where they had baby Jesus. And we've cleaned it up. We've made it so warm and cozy, and then we threw in some wise men and some other animals and, like, you know, a lion and, and a dog and a, and a horse. And it's like, what? None of those would have been... No, it would have just been sheep, and it just would have been poop. And maybe they got lucky and got a stone manger. Like, that's all it would have been. And it's like, no, 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 there'd be some, like fresh bale of hay right there because they just, nope, they didn't have a big old truck to deliver all the hay. Like it would have literally been just poop, dirt, and stone, and we cleaned it up. And when the shepherds heard the announcement, hey, Jesus is born, the king, immediately they would have thought, wait, if a king's born, wouldn't the king be in a palace? Because that's where kings are. I'm a shepherd. I take care of sheep. Like, no one's out here. And the angel said, no, you're going to find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. When they hear manger, they go, I know where mangers are, and they're not in the king's palaces. They're not in Masada. They're not in Caesarea. They're not in the Herodian. They're in, they're in the cave we just came from the other night. All right, let's go check out Jesus. And they run. He was not in a palace, he was in a cave. He was in the smallest of small Bethlehem and the smallest of insignificant and discarded places, the cave. And while Herod, the Edomite, was in the palace and the king of the universe was in a shepherd's cave. Mary believed it, Joseph believed it, the shepherds believed that Jesus was God. 
the creator of the universe. And one man also believed that Jesus was the king of the Jews with all of his heart. That was Herod. When the wise men, when the, the some have said maybe, you know, they, they were into the astrology and, and tarot card reading and maybe into witchcraft. They were the least, they were the worst people, you know, and I thought about that recently. I was like, really? You know all these tarot card people I, I walk by and read? They were the ones looking at the stars and they're like, hey, check out this star. What'd that guy Daniel say when he was here many years ago? And you kept talking about your great grandfather that had lunch with Daniel and he said something about this. Like, oh, let's go check it. And God revealed himself through his creation, bringing Jesus here. And when they showed up and told Herod, hey, we're looking for this king. Why is he in? Why? Wait, he's not your son, but you're the king. Like, you mean you didn't have a son? Herod's like, no, I don't. So Herod got all of his witchcraft, tarot card readers, astrologers, and religious people to get together, and they realized, yeah, these are the prophecies. This is true. So Herod was like, hey, when you find him, tell me. I want to go worship him. No, he didn't. He believed that Jesus was king. He believed that he was powerless against Jesus. And so he did everything and anything he could to try, but he was terrified. He wasn't terrified of snakes and spiders. He wasn't terrified of someone breaking into his truck and stealing a stereo. He was terrified of his power being taken. He was terrified of his possessions being stripped away. And he realized he had little to no protection. If this is the king of the universe that showed up behind his Herodian a few miles away, and it was, it was a baby lying in a shepherd's cave that terrified him. It's interesting how God chose the most magnificent megalomaniac to build all that the world could ever offer and say, actually, it's Jesus that you need. So all the world's always had an opportunity to, to be a, a temptation, but that will never satisfy, and it never lasts. So in the city of David, God put Herod's family to shame. God puts us to shame because we're living the same way that Herod was. We want our possessions. We want our power, and we want to protect both. And then Jesus shows up, and it's this innocent, loving baby that says, do you believe I'm king? And we do. But when we believe he's king, we either want to kill him or we're faithful to him. That's our response. We're fearful, and we want to kill the idea, and we become an atheist, and we say, oh, he doesn't exist. I'm going to live my way. Or we say, nope, I'm not going to believe in him. I'm going to do whatever I want. And I'm going to create this other God that says, if I do enough good, he'll love me and accept me in. He doesn't give us that option. He says, I'm king and I'm Lord and I've come to save the world. Do you believe that? And do you, will you be faithful to me and serve me? And so today, people come to look at Herod's ruins. The point of his greatness and his vision is buried there and is left there in the dirt. His vision died with him. All of his possessions were taken away by the people that conquered him and came after him. And probably all you know about Herod is that he liked to kill babies at Christmas and he was so terrified of his kingdom being taken that he built and built and built to try and maintain his power. But the baby in a cave started a movement, saved one person, two person, and they went and shared the light of life they had in Christ and it began to transform hearts and minds and lives one by one. And that 
Jesus, that king of kings, not only started the movement, but that movement has no end. He's the king who will rule and reign forever. So Jesus left salvation to you and me to carry on to the next person. A lot of people have ideas that communicate values that God is love and true. And God says Jesus is king no matter how small and weak he seems. And Herod believed that Jesus was king and wanted to kill him. And you and I, do we believe that Jesus is king and want to kill him and push him away? Or are we receiving Jesus as the shepherds did? Are we leaving everything behind to come and, and worship Jesus as king like the wise men did, which were mainly just astrologers, but they have the wise because they were wise enough to leave the foolish things of this world and trust in Jesus and come worship him. Have you seen him? As we see this stone manger, the stone manger is the simplest, most humble. Every time I see it, I didn't know it was a stone until I was in Israel, and I was like, oh, that's a cool watering trough. Like, no, that's actually the feeding. I was like, oh, that's where the animal, oh, that's where Jesus was in. It's, it's hard, it's uncomfortable, but the God declared, this is the way of salvation. It's, it's simple, but it's humbling. And we see that God's in control of it all. So as we, as we wrap up and think about this, Jesus comes in the shadow of Herod. And because of the threat of death, they run to Israel or run out of Israel to Egypt, and then they come back. And it was exactly as God had planned. Hosea 11.1 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And then he comes back, and it's fulfilled in Matthew 2, that out of Egypt I called my son, God says. And Matthew makes sure he records it. And after they come back, after Herod died, they went and lived in Nazareth, Matthew 2. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. God's always in control, and God is with us. And when it seems like the world's falling apart, and it seems like you're in storm after storm, or tragedy after tragedy, God is still in it, working his plan, and it's revealing to us that his Savior fulfilled over 300 prophecies. And so if you're yet to believe, God's given you all the evidence, why not start following him? And, and Jesus didn't come to convince you of anything. He said, come and experience what I've saved you for. I've saved you from sin. I've saved you for a community, for a family, and to belong together. Because Jesus didn't ever say, go to church. He said, go tell people about me, and you're going to do it together. You're going to be a family. You're going to do it in community. And so as we end, we, we have to answer that question. Are we fearful, like Herod, wanting to push Jesus away and kill him? Or are we faithful like the shepherds and wise men that heard just enough that would give them enough evidence to find Jesus and then immediately worshiped him and told people about him. And they didn't let what they didn't know keep them from sharing what they did know, that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords was born that day. And so as we close today, I want to give you a chance to pray and, and seek Jesus. And, and maybe for the first time, you're going to say, I need you, Jesus, to be my Savior. I need you to be my Lord. And, and I'll come back up and we have some communion elements we'll pass out. Um, and if you need them, just raise your hand and I'll come back up and close this. But it's because of Jesus that our sins are washed away and we can walk in his grace and love. But there's still a 
choice maybe some of us are making to put him away. So I want to lay that before us. If you've yet to trust in Jesus alone as your Savior, make that now. And for us believers, as we take the time to thank Jesus for coming to pay for our sins, I'll come back up and close this in a minute.